Welcome inside Appalachia. I'm Mason Adams. Allegheny and Covington high schools were rivals for decades, but now they've merged. This week, we head to a home football game and learn how it's going. It's, it's weird. It, it's not the best, but you we're know. getting through it. Yeah, we gotta have yeah. that, that Cougar spirit. I'm glad we kept the name. I'm glad we kept the name. Also, the daughter of a legendary guitar maker didn't set out to take up her father's craft, but she's found it irresistible. I like getting to know people. I like hearing their stories, where they've walked, what they've done. I love that. And a trip to the mushroom capital of the U.S. The mushrooms are made to just pop up for a short period of time and die and release spores to try and conquer the world. You'll hear these stories and more this week inside Appalachia. Welcome inside Appalachia, I'm Mason Adams. There's nothing hotter than a high school sports rivalry. For me growing up, that meant the Allegheny Mountaineers versus the Covington Cougars. I was a Mountaineer, and beating the Cougars was a top priority in every sport, but especially football. That dynamic loomed in the back of my head as I headed to Allegheny's homecoming game this year. Hello. One, please. One, $7. This was my first game in nearly 30 years, and walking in felt, well, weird. Here come your Allegheny That's not right. I was a mountaineer. The fight song sounds familiar, but something's off. And we're here at Covington's home football field. This is enemy territory. As you might have guessed by now, this is the Allegheny football team, but there's been a key change. Starting this year, Allegheny and Covington merged school systems. There's no longer separate school systems, just a single consolidated district. So this is the first homecoming game of the newly combined Allegheny Cougars. I'm here because I wanted to understand, who's coming home for homecoming, if not alumni who previously attended separate schools? truth, this merger has been a long time coming. Allegheny County sits on the Virginia-West Virginia border, right on Interstate 64. Its economy was built largely around a paper mill and the railroad, but neither are the dominant employers they once were, and the county's population has declined from its height in the 50s. School enrollment dropped too. Covington mostly remained small but stable, while Allegheny lost about a 1,000 students over the last 20 years. It reached a point where, for a lot of reasons, it really didn't make sense to maintain separate school systems. So after decades of debate and years of planning, Allegheny and Covington finally merged. But it was a tricky process. The schools are still making tweaks and adjustments, and probably will be for years to come and a lot of people still have mixed feelings, to say the least. When I first walk in the game, I ask a couple of teachers whether I might see alumni wearing old Mountaineer and Cougar letter jackets. You, you probably won't see it. How come? Everybody's trying to band together yeah, to make I mean, this work. Because there's been so much negative, you know. People are so negative not wanting it to work. And it turns out a lot of folks my age and older are wary about talking on the record. It's not so much they've got a hot take. I think it's more that everyone is nervous about saying the wrong thing and getting people all fired up again. But the more I'm there, the more I see signs that people are coming together around this process. Take that fight song, for instance. It turns out writing the team's new song involved a lot of negotiation and compromise. So with the fight song, it was, you know, it was very public. Here's Allegheny band director Adam Eggleston. We had to bring together all of the old fight songs and make something new for this group to hold on to. And I think we've managed to do most of that pretty well. And so they're blending together and we're, we're moving right along. How do you merge a fight song? <sighs> very carefully. But we, we hired some composers we'd worked with before, some arrangers that we trusted 
who didn't have any allegiance to either side, therefore we knew they couldn't play favorites, and so we let them piece it together very carefully. The same goes for choreography. Laura DeSilvi is Allegheny High School's color guard instructor. So the first uh, kick line that we do um, in the fight song is from Allegheny. That's the first, I think, eight counts. And then the next eight counts is actually the kick line from Covington. And then we made um, a whole new section for the last half. So the kids actually got to come up with that. The cheers, too. The band is also playing a couple of new songs for the first time. There's Taylor Swift's Industry Baby. And another tune you might recognize. You know, one of the other new songs we brought in this year was Country Roads. We've seen that the student section and everybody, they really get into that, start singing along. But the main thing for a lot of students is that the consolidated football team is good. Like, really good. They roll over Carroll County, who, like a lot of Allegheny's opponents now, traveled here from more than two hours away. Nick Fry was part of the Cougar Maniac student section. Covington had a lot of athleticism, but Allegheny had a lot of strength and size. So, like, the merge is, like, the two things you need in football put together. Like, athleticism and then size put together. So it's amazing. And I saw plenty of signs of how students are weathering the merger. I spot Olivia Bell and Nicole Fry because they're both wearing face paint. They say the transition has had its ups and downs. It's, it's weird. It, it's not the best, but you we're know, getting through it. Yeah, we gotta have yeah. that that cougar spirit. I'm yeah. glad we kept the name. Yeah. I'm glad we kept the name. Tell me about face painting. Did y'all do this before? Yeah, yeah. we do. We just got we go out every single every single time. Yeah. Does it feel weird? Yeah. Different colors. A little. Yeah. I'm glad we kept the navy. Yeah, the navy. It's yeah. it's good not having a full change. Other traditions continue unabated, like a group of students wearing senior jeans. What are senior jeans? I'll let Cadence nicely explain. Well, shout out to Susanna Bourbois and Alyssa Taylor for the inspo. Um, last year, they were our seniors, so, and they did it, so we just carried the tradition. Like, you put your, your grade on them, your school, you can put what sports you play, your name, your initials, mascot, whatever you want to put on them, you can. I have pom-poms on mine. Talking to students makes it easy to catch school spirit. There's the band, the cheers, the game on the field, and especially the student cheering section, led by the self-identified Cougar Maniacs. Two of them took a break from leading chance to speak with me. Uh, I'm Tanner Hope. Aiden Roman. I'm a, I'm a senior. I am a junior. We got the most spirit out of everyone. We're always chanting. Just trying to make everybody have a good time and enjoy the game. Were y'all Allegheny or Covington before? I was uh, Allegheny. I'm Covington. Really? Yeah. So yeah. what's it like having the, the both together now? It's fun. It's interesting. It was it was different at first, but I've gotten used to it. I've made new friends and all that stuff. I think, I think it was worth it. Yeah, it was worth it, yeah, for sure. Were y'all maniacs for your respective sides before oh, this? Oh, yeah, oh, yeah. Yeah, of but course. Was it weird? Was it awkward? Yeah. It was awkward at first, but as you can see, we're all... We're all cougars now. Yeah. So. This merger just brought the whole community together instead of against each other, it seems like. AHS on top. Nah, CHS on top. <laughs> Allegheny ended up defeating Carroll County, 47-0. The Cougar season eventually concluded with a loss in the playoffs. The team finished with a record of nine wins and two losses.
Wayne Henderson has been making guitars since he was a teenager. The guitars he makes now are prized by players who are willing to wait up to a decade to get their hands on one. Henderson's handmade instruments are played by some of the most notable musicians in the world. And so his daughter, Elizabeth Jane Henderson, grew up wary of building guitars herself. After all, it's hard enough for kids to grow up in the shadow of a celebrated parent much less follow in their footsteps. But now, Jane is carrying on the family tradition, in her own way. Folkways reporter Margaret McLeod Leaf has this story. I'm in Wayne Henderson's workshop in Rugby, Virginia, with his daughter Jane. Wayne is checking out a guitar Jane recently built. Very nice sound and tone. This is high praise. Wayne has made guitars for everyone from Vince Gill to Eric Clapton. Wayne charges about $5,000 for a new handmade guitar, but they can fetch much more on eBay and other secondary markets. He taught his daughter Jane to build guitars, but it wasn't something she learned when she was growing up. Jane says back then she didn't have any interest in hanging around her dad's shop. There were too many other people vying for his attention. I wanted to be special. I wanted to feel like he was my dad and not Wayne Henderson, the guy that everybody just reveres and thinks is just the coolest. And I was like, I don't want anything to do with this because I don't want to have to stand in line for my dad's attention. So Jane followed her own path. She went to college and got a master's in environmental law and policy. But pretty soon... She realized her nonprofit salary wasn't enough to pay off her student loans, so she asked her dad for help. And she said she had this loan, student loan going on, I guess like all kids that go to school do. <laughs> and, and, uh, and she said, I'd love to pay this loan, and said, seeing what your guitars bring, would you make me one that I could sell on eBay or some, somehow? But Wayne had another idea. I told her, what you need to do is make it yourself. I told her, I'll help you. I'll give you my best wood. It'll be one of my guitars, which means it's got to be done exactly right, and I'll probably make you do stuff over. When I started that first guitar, I thought it'd be terrible. I'm like, ugh, I, fine, I'll do it, because, you know, they sell for a lot of money on eBay, and i got to pay back these law school loans. And what happened, I just... I, I loved it so much, and I got to stand next to him instead of in line to, to be, you know, the next groupie or whatever. I got to stand there with him, and, and he showed me how to do things, and we actually got, we had something, a level playing field to chat about things. We had something in common, and it was the relationship that I got that I never really got to have growing up. Turns out, Jane had a knack for building guitars. That first guitar sold for $25,000 and put a hefty dent in the loans. It wasn't long before Jane was hooked. Within about six months, she quit her environmental job to build instruments full-time. Traditional guitars are typically made from imported woods like Brazilian rosewood and mahogany. They're not always sustainable. But Jane makes hers from locally sourced and reclaimed wood. She also makes ukuleles from smaller scraps of wood that might otherwise be discarded. My passion lies more in preserving the natural world. I want to do that. And, you know, I get to use this platform to sort of push the things that I like. Jane gets wood from a few different sources. One of those is just around the corner from her home studio in Asheville, North Carolina. It's called Scrounger's Paradise. It's a good name for it. There are stacks of cut and planed wood from all over the world. Is that beautiful or what? That's original chestnut before the blight came into North Carolina. Owner Mark Oliveri keeps tabs on wood that he thinks Jane might want. Um, yeah, you, you like it? Yeah. And, and you know, it reminds me of white oak. It, it does. Oak Jane taps the wood to see if it has a good tonal quality. I mean, you can... Yeah, yeah, a little bit, yeah. You can tell, it's so the cool thing about this, oh wow, this or like oak, it's almost, it doesn't ring quite like Brazilian rosewood, but the density is really similar. This stuff has more of a bell-like Yeah, tip. it does. That's it right. just ding instead of a mm, it, but I, Choosing the right wood is just one part of Jane's process. Today, 
She's using a jeweler saw to carve abalone shell to make a pearly decorative inlay on a guitar neck. Jane's known for her custom inlay. She designs each instrument for the person who will play it. I like getting to know people. I like hearing their stories, where they've walked, what they've done. I love that. So I really try and focus on on the person, on the human that is asking me for something. Each guitar takes a little over a month. Jane says making guitars has become more than her livelihood. I don't do this because I want to make a guitar. I do this because I can't not do it and because it brings me so much joy to use my hands and this is the way with which I can do it. But I love that I get to do something that makes somebody, you know, really happy. It's been 14 years since Jane built that first guitar with her dad. She no longer needs Wayne to oversee her work, but she often does her finishing work in his workshop in rugby, where she spent weekends growing up. My stamp in my guitars, you know, has E.J. Henderson, where my dad says W.C. Henderson. They both say Rugby Virginia on them, and I never changed that. I'm not going to, whether no matter where I move, it'll always say that because that's my heart's here and my dad's here. So it just. I've just always been had that interest, you know, in a, in guitar making, and can imagine you're young and doing it too. There can't be nothing much more exciting or better than that. Seeing her figure out stuff like that too is pretty exciting to do, and as big as anything I can think of. Sometimes when Jane visits, Wayne coaxes her to play music together. Though Jane says she's not the musician, her dad is. Let's play, I really want to do it. I don't know let's play Freight Train. You can do that. Today, Wayne is playing a guitar Jane made for the songwriter and guitarist Doc Watson, who was also a close family friend. Doc died a week before the guitar was finished. This is a guitar she made for Doc, and it's made out of uh, white oak. That's that board she's talked about finding down there. Jane is playing one of her dad's favorite instruments, a ukulele she made for him as a birthday gift. This ukulele has special meaning for her. The present was, look what you did for me. You know, see what you showed me, you know, that I can make something really special, and that's just because of you. (laughs) For Inside Appalachia, this is Margaret McLeod Leaf in Rugby, Virginia. Those two stories are part of our Folkways reporting project, which covers arts and culture in the region. For more Folkways stories, visit our website, wvpublic.org. Later in the show, how the bean dish for Holes Charos made its way from northern Mexico to Appalachian, Ohio. Customers come from Texas, California, Florida, and the United States or work in the construction. Hey, amigo, you have a frijoles charros. You're inside Appalachia. I'm Mason Adams. Support for Inside Appalachia is provided by Concord University, focusing on students' futures. Classes available at concord.edu slash apply. Wild mushroom hunting has been practiced throughout Appalachia as long as people have lived here. We've featured mushroom hunters from Kentucky, Virginia, and West Virginia. But did you know that Pennsylvania is the biggest producer of mushrooms in the U.S.? WVIA's Cat Bolas brings us this story about Pennsylvania's mushroom farms and foraging clubs. The uh, ancient Greeks used to think that the mushrooms were sent from Zeus by his lightning because they would show up after the rain. That's James Bolas, the head chef and owner of Backwoods Bar and Kitchen in Dallas. He's also my cousin. Our dads were brothers. James is the first person I knew to go foraging. In August, I met him in the woods in Luzerne County. 
James brought along a packet of information about wild mushrooms and the National Audubon Society's Field Guide to Mushrooms in North America. James says mushrooms are not a plant or an animal. The spore-producing organisms have their own kingdom. There's 10 subphyla, 35 classes, 12 subclasses, and 129 orders. Of the estimated 3.8 million fungi species, only 148,000 have been described. There are four types of fungi. Some, like oyster mushrooms, grow on dead and decaying matter like dead trees. Others are parasitic. Endophytic mushrooms are the least understood fungi. They live within a plant but don't cause them harm. They also don't provide any benefits. So it's not a symbiotic relationship. They're just hanging out together, which is interesting. Last are mycortisol fungi, like truffles. And that's going to be most of the ground mushrooms that you find. So, you want to go for a walk in the woods? Where, where do we have some good trails? James isn't the only person out there foraging. I joined along the Nature Conservancy's oh, Mushroom here. 101 program in the Poconos. Actually, there's another old saying amongst mushroom enthusiasts. Every mu mushroom is edible. Once. <laughs> That's Dave Washleski from the Wyoming Valley Mushroom Club. He's guiding a small group of future foragers. Washleski is a citizen scientist. He uses mostly Latin names for the mushrooms. Now, dead man's fingers are xylarium. He's been hunting mushrooms for 40 years. But I've really become quite interested in collecting mushrooms to study, to preserve and pass along to researchers. Both Washleski and James say, before you start foraging, learn your trees. Some mushrooms prefer being in contact with coniferous trees, you know, over a hardwood like an mm -hmm. oak or a maple and vice versa. When I met up with James, it was August. There was a dry spell followed by rain. He says that's an ideal time to forage. He always brings a field guide with him, and he doesn't rely on apps or an internet search. James says when identifying mushrooms, there's a few characteristics to keep in mind. Look at the shape, size, and texture of the cap. Flip it over and check out the bottom. Is it a polypore, which looks like a sponge, or does it have gills? James recommends beginners avoid mushrooms with the thin, papery structures under the mushroom cap that look like an accordion folder. Most lethally poisonous mushrooms have gills. Check out the stem. If it has rings around it, James says to avoid that one too. There are many edible mushrooms, but that doesn't mean you should eat them. So when we're talking about mushrooms that are favorable for the plate, we call them choice mushrooms. While mushrooms and a vast variety of them seem to sprout up just about everywhere in nature, growing them for commercial purposes is complicated and scientific. You can't have mushrooms and Pennsylvania in the same sentence without mentioning the Kennett Square area of Chester County. So first we need to talk a little bit about history, the history of mushroom farms in, in Pennsylvania. Um, it started back in the late 1800s. That's Maria Gorgo from Penn State Extension. William Swain was a florist who lived in Kennett Square. Gorgo says in the 19th century, he decided to grow mushrooms beneath his greenhouse benches. He became successful mostly because of his close proximity to Philadelphia. He was followed by other people, you know, by other farmers that started growing mushrooms in, in, in southeastern Pennsylvania. Gorgo says Pennsylvania is the number one producer of mushrooms, but it's not necessarily because of climate or soil or any other factors that typically impact crops. You can pretty much grow it everywhere, everywhere, anywhere. It's a 12 months, seven days a week production. James knew I was on a mushroom journey. He had an opportunity to tour Tojo Mushrooms. It's a fourth generation family farm in Avondale. On our drive-in, about 10 miles from the farm, we passed a water tower declaring Kennett Square as the mushroom capital of the world. Tojo has 70 rooms for growing mushrooms. They are spread out over seven locations in a 20 to 25 mile perimeter. Tony Suma is Tojo's growing coordinator and was our tour guide. He's also a Northeast PA native. He grew up in Moscow. He took us first to where they compost the soil. It's used to grow the mainly white and brown mushrooms that can be found at grocery stores all over Pennsylvania. Piles of compost smoked on the humid, chilly gray day. It's made up of straw, hay, manure, cacao shells, corn cob, gypsum, and other organic items. 
Suma says each ingredient provides a different nutritional component for the mushrooms, and each mushroom grower has their own unique formula. Large trucks flip and aerate the compost. The core needs to stay hot to kill microbes and pathogens. Suma then took us into a cinder block grow house. It's known as a double because of the shape of the roof. The grow room is 70 feet long. Mushroom spores and compost are mixed on wooden beds. There's seven levels of beds inside the dark rooms. The first room smelled like thyme. They put the herb dust in the air to keep the gnats away. You can see it's starting to get a little fuzzy, and that's where the mycelium's starting to colonize and get together. Fungus spores are microscopic. Before they're placed in the compost, Suma says, the spores are put on smaller pieces of organic matter like grain or millet. In the wild, spores are transferred mostly by the wind. They develop into that fuzzy mycelium that looks like a winter's frost on the compost. It's an unseen network of fungus, or the roots. Mushrooms then sprout from that network. Hunter Vargo has a small mushroom farm in Holly. He compared mushrooms to apples. The fruit is made to reproduce and die off the apple tree. It's the same thing. The mushrooms are made to just pop up for a short period of time and die and release spores to try and conquer the world. Mushroom growers like Tojo and Vargo monitor the temperature throughout the entire grow process. I was happy to be wearing a coat when we checked out the first room at Tojo. By the time we got to the last grow room of the tour, seemingly perfect round mushroom caps sprouted up in dense patches. My coat was less necessary. Suma handed us flashlights before we went into the grow rooms. They're kept dark because... The mycelium doesn't like light. The mushrooms are picked from the grow house, then brought back to Chojo's factory and processed. Plastic packages of mushrooms roll down the assembly line. Plastic wrap was placed over the top and stuck with a variety of grocery store-specific labels. Somewhere between foraging and large-scale farming are the small mushroom farmers like Vargo. So what do we have back here? So you Yeah, said... so we have some blue oyster mushrooms on this rack, and they're just uh, basically simple kitchen racks. Vargo is 20. Yeah. He runs Mountain View Mushrooms. It's a small operation in his neighbor's barn. He works as a farmhand. Vargo feeds the horses, pigs, and chickens in exchange for using the space. He built the grow room himself. Patched up some concrete holes, put up a little structure on the back side of this barn, um, added my own heating and cooling system to keep the little room somewhat climate controlled. During the pandemic, Vargo's mom bought a mushroom growing kit from Walmart. He became fascinated with the process. He offered his first harvest to the Woodlock Springs Resort in Holly at no charge. I just dropped them off and they wanted to buy. Cool. And that's how my business started. Then his teacher from Walpawpack area, Clayton Lacoe, suggested Hunter sell at the Scranton Co-op Farmer's Market. And I uh, just took a chance and, and went there that. and it's been doing really good. Yeah. yeah. I love it there. I have so much friends and like just supportive farmers and yeah, it's a really nice community to be around. On a recent Friday, I heard Vargo sharing his mushroom knowledge with a hesitant buyer. She walked away with a paper bag of mushrooms. Hunter grows his mushrooms on pieces of hardwood. He first mixes his own substrate, which is like the compost mix at Tojo. He also heats it up to kill off any bacteria. In a sterile room in his family's home, he inoculates the mix with mushroom spores. His grow room looks like a walk-in cooler you'd find at a restaurant. Inside, big fuzzy lion's mane mushrooms sprout up like clouds on logs covered in plastic. Tiny white enoki mushrooms grow in large, dense patches like white grass. He has vibrant blue oyster mushrooms and puffy, thick king pearl oyster mushrooms. He likes to keep the room at 55 to 60 degrees. Things grow really slow, but the product looks way better. Vargo learned how to grow from YouTube and now documents his process on his own channel. Yeah, views. Oh, oh my god, that's a lot. Yeah, so this is the Rusula. So these are an edible mushroom, um, but almost every time you see them, if they're any bigger than this, they've... Oh, look, I beat me to it anyway. Squirrel got it. Almost every Back in the I've woods, James and I found so many different types squirrel. of mushrooms. We took home black trumpet mushrooms. He says they're very specific to hardwood forests and grow mostly in the summer months. Yeah, this is a great, great haul here. If I spent the whole day out here, I could definitely find several pounds of these. Using a sharp knife, James cut the mushrooms close to their base. He says mushrooms that grow on trees are woodier the closer you get to the tree, so you can just snap them off at the cap. 
When we got back to the restaurant, he made a meal with our haul. James says raw mushrooms are hard to digest. They also have compounds you have to cook off to make the fungus edible. Mushrooms are more about texture than taste. Uh, the oyster mushroom, for instance, literally has the texture of an oyster once you cook it. I would say there's a wider range of textures than flavors. Once you like spot a couple mushrooms and then realize, oh, I can eat that. And then obviously the cooking side of things, I just, yeah, I don't know, it all came together and now I'm just obsessed with it. I don't know, I guess I've just always loved the idea of um, just free food, I guess, natural food, eating, off, eating from the land, like it just feels right. Reporting from Northeast PA and Avondale, I'm Kat Bolas. <laughs> The U.S. Justice Department defines human trafficking as a crime that involves coercing people into forced labor or sex acts. Some of these people disappear and are never seen again. It happens all over the world, and law enforcement officials are starting to realize it's happening here, too. WVPB's news director, Eric Douglas, brings us the first in a three-part series on human trafficking in West Virginia. A warning... Some of the topics in this story are difficult and may not be appropriate for some listeners. Everyone is against human trafficking. The problem is, what most of us imagine as human trafficking isn't really what happens, at least in a place like West Virginia. Human trafficking is the exploitation of an individual for the purpose of commercial sex or compelled labor. Just to kind of clarify that, it, uh, human smuggling is a crime against a border where transportation is required, but human trafficking is a crime against a person and uh, transportation is not required. That was Polly Ant. She's the Programs and Law Enforcement Training Coordinator from the West Virginia Fusion Center. The agency brings together intelligence from multiple law enforcement agencies. Her job is to identify situations where human trafficking is suspected and to send that information along to local police. Like she said, human trafficking doesn't require travel. Victims don't have to be taken anywhere. They don't have to cross state lines or even leave their hometowns. There does have to be fraud, force, or coercion to make the situation into human trafficking. Jack Lucard is the director of the Fusion Center. How big of a problem is it in West Virginia? Well, we don't know. It's the one of the most under-investigated, under-prosecuted crimes that we have. Often these crimes are perpetrated by family members or other trusted individuals who sell people who are in difficult situations for sex. For Yount, the problem is many victims may not understand they are being used. They may not realize that they're a victim as well. They may not realize that the, the situation that they're in, um, again, through the f use of force, fraud, or coercion, uh, that it is a situation of human trafficking. And again, goes back to those resources. They may not know um, who to seek out for help. Lucart says he has 30 years in law enforcement, but he never really heard about human trafficking until the last few years wasn't even a topic of conversation among law enforcement. Um, uh, I was never given any classes on human trafficking. I was never told how to recognize human trafficking. No prosecutor or uh, anyone ever said we might have a human trafficking charge here. Or I, as, a, as an officer, never thought about that side of things. One goal through the Fusion Center is to take training and education to state agencies and to make sure law enforcement doesn't miss the opportunity to file those charges. I just think that as we educate, as we publicize, the, the statewide initiative, uh, the governor's office has directed all state offices to uh, put the brochures, the flyers out. The information is going to be posted in all rest areas, all uh, welcome centers. Secretary of State Mac Warner is also using his position as the licensing agency for all businesses in the state to create West Virginia businesses against trafficking. Businesses are asked to post information to be aware of customers who may be in trouble. So the Secretary of State's office is, is actually educating our businesses, uh, business owners, business leaders on human trafficking. And these, these flyers and these brochures are going to be put in West Virginia businesses. For William Thompson, the U.S. Attorney for the Southern District of West Virginia, the problem is basic and troubling. A lot of what we see is, is a direct result of what I call, you know, you can call it the opioid epidemic, the drug epidemic, whatever it might be. And we see a lot of what 
family trafficking, where family members are essentially selling young children into sexual acts uh, in order to get some money, which is then usually spent on drugs. That is the most common form of human trafficking, but Thompson explained that he does see labor trafficking too. Uh, whether it be panhandling, you know, we've seen the, you go through a, a Walmart or somewhere close and you see people panhandling, usually that's a form of human trafficking. Uh, they'll transport them six, eight, ten hours away, uh, take their, any means of transportation, ID, communications, and say, you need to go out and do this for a number of hours or you don't get a ride home. Ultimately, whether for sex or for labor, people are preyed upon by others while they are at their most vulnerable. Often, their support system is gone, or they are isolated and there is no one to turn to. And then, the trafficker tells them to do something, or they will lose what little they have left. It is also, commonly, a family member or relative that is doing the trafficking. They've taken three years of my life telling a story that wasn't even true. There was missing parts of it, and I just want to be able to fill the missing pieces with what actually happened. That was Jane Doe. She is a victim of human trafficking. Her trafficker has been sentenced to prison. The man she was sold to for sex will be sentenced soon. And at that point, she says, she looks forward to telling everyone her story. For West Virginia Public Broadcasting, I'm Eric Douglas in Charleston. Politicians are increasingly targeting LGBTQ plus people across America, but young people are pushing back against the rhetoric and working to make their communities more welcoming for queer folks. Beck Banks is a professor at Warren Wilson College in North Carolina who studies transgender art and media. Louisville Public Media's Divya Karthikeyan spoke with Banks about queer visibility in Appalachia. It seems like LGBTQ people in small towns in rural America are often ignored in this larger conversation surrounding queer life and culture. We're also seeing people in small towns talk about, write about, mobilize around uh, being queer and existing as queer in their small towns and rural spaces. Um, Talk to me about what you're exactly observing. Yeah, there has been something that's been really baked into the United States about like, if you're queer, you've got to go to a city. And there are so many thriving places. And they don't mean like just any city. They mean certain cities. Like, And we do have migration patterns. People who go to Atlanta from the south, people who go up to New York, when I lived in New York, most of the people I hung out with were from Georgia. Uh, like That's just kind of a thing that occurs because of the mass number, not the percentage, but just like can we get more people into one space. So you're originally from East Tennessee. You spent many years in larger cities like New York and Philadelphia before returning to the central Appalachia region. Tell me more about why you made that decision. Instead, I, I got really obsessed with studying what was happening with queer people because I actually saw more space for me. Once I left, um, just because of the way that people were mobilizing, I saw a good community space formed that the number of prides that have happened, the number of just like queer centers, it's really been amazing to watch those occur over the past few years. And a lot of it is, I mean, it's a reaction to the state of what's happening in politics. We're also talking about queer people's choices to leave or stay in the middle of anti-LGBTQ legislation, rhetoric, a rise in extremism and threats. How do you view that in the context of people who are trying to create communities that they can live in, in rural Kentucky, rural America? I think that there is unfortunately too many politicians who have gotten into gaslighting, into creating like these villainous caricatures, which actually are our young people who are able to be able to talk more about themselves in a more articulate manner. Um, I think that if some of those politicians turn some of that kind of thoughtfulness that younger people who are identifying more as queer, understanding their their gender better, understanding their sexuality more, I think if some of those politicians were to turn that inward for themselves, they might be able to name things more about who they are, Um, whether it be queer, whether it be a certain type of supremacist. Um, There is a lot that people are overlooking. And uh, I I just am very happy that younger generations are getting the opportunity to be able to understand themselves better in this way. And in the backdrop of all of this legislation targeting LGBTQ plus people, we're also seeing Gen Z being open about their identity and gender expression. How do you see that translating in terms of community building? 
I have seen a lot of people who are like, it's not just enough to identify. I need to engage in the world. Um, and that's how you get like short documentaries, pieces of art that come out. You get people who are more politically engaged, which is definitely something we are seeing with Gen Z. I mean, I think that this is just a part of that. It's just like, hey, I recognize it is not just enough to identify a certain way. I've got to protect the people around me. I've got to protect other people who are doing this. And that there has been a lot of community formation that has happened within that. Uh, and I am a huge proponent of that. If you find yourself identifying as queer, if you're a marginalized person, getting more involved with other people who are working on something to make their world better is a great way to understand yourself faster. Um, and uh, that just seems to be one of the things that's being enacted right now. That was Beck Banks an assistant professor of communications at Warren Wilson College, talking with Divya Karthikeyan. A bowl of brothy pinto beans is comfort food for a lot of folks here in Appalachia. There's a similar tradition in rural northern Mexico. It's a dish called frijoles charros, or charro beans. Now, frijoles charros have come to the former coal town of Wellston in southeast Ohio. Folkways reporter Nicole Musgrave has this story. Walking off the quiet streets of downtown Wellston, Ohio, and into Viva Jalisco, all my senses light up. A lively mariachi waltz plays throughout the dining room. The walls and booths are decorated with brightly colored depictions of agave farms and Frida Kahlo paintings. The scent of garlic and onions and chilies wafts through the air. I'm greeted by Juan Rios, the owner of Viva Jalisco. How are you? Good, how are you? Good, good. I'm Juan. Juan, I'm Nicole. Uh, nice to meet you. It's good to meet you. Juan okay. takes me back into the kitchen, where a pot of frijoles charros is simmering on the stove. This is for uh, charros, uh, frijoles charros. Uh -huh. Right now we cook probably another 20 minutes. Juan moved to the U.S. when he was 20, and since then, he's primarily worked in restaurants. He started out bussing tables and washing dishes. Then he learned to cook, and eventually he opened his own restaurant. Juan's mom gets a kick out of the fact that he's learned to cook. I never cook it myself in Mexico. I just let my mom and my sister cook in and we come in here, you see, we're cooking now here. My mom laughed at me because, you see, you're in the United States and you're cooking now. You sell, yes, right? <laughs> so when you were learning to cook in the restaurant, did you ever call your mom and ask for advice? Sometimes, yeah, yeah, sometimes. I said, Mom, can you tell me how to make this? Okay. If she knows how to make it, they, they told me how to make it. One dish that Juan remembers his mom making back in Mexico City is frijoles charros, or charro beans, the same dish she's making today here in Wellston. Charros in Spanish means cowboy, so the name frijoles charros harkens back to the stew's history as an important food tradition in rural ranching communities of northern Mexico. In order to sustain the workers during long days of herding cattle, the stew is packed with protein. Along with beans, frijoles charros is heavy on the meat. In his version, Juan cuts up three different kinds of meat to add to the beans. Uh, bacon, uh, hot dogs like a, we call salchichas, and a ham. So this is we cut it. Juan says that growing up, frijoles charros was something the women in his family made for special occasions or large gatherings, like weddings, holidays, and quinceañeras. He explains the soup beans were served at the beginning of the meal. Before you got your meal, you got your pinto, your frijoles charros. It's was for you starting. And you can get like your chips, or your tortilla. You just pour a spoon a house out, you pour onto your frijoles charros and start eating before your meal coming. Yeah. So it's like an appetizer. Yes, yes. In addition to being a staple at family gatherings, Frijoles charros is a common side dish in restaurants throughout northern Mexico and along the U.S.-Mexico border. But historically, it's not something that's often seen on menus at Mexican restaurants in southern Ohio. Elena Fallis grew up in northern Mexico and moved to Ohio at the age of 17. 
Elena lived in Ohio for 30 years, where she went on to teach at The Ohio State University. These days, she's at Texas A&M, but is also working on a digital oral history project about Latinas in Ohio, which is being archived at the Center for Folklore Studies at Ohio State. Elena thinks one reason that charro beans aren't as visible in Southern Ohio might have to do with spice. I would say that the fact that traditionally charro beans have been spicy, that might be what maybe makes uh, Mexican restaurant owners not make as much or not have it in their menu because of the level of spiciness. Elena explains that when she first moved to Ohio around 30 years ago, a lot of the Mexican restaurants in the area were white-owned, and they catered to a mostly non-Mexican, non-Latinx audience. So they were cautious about not making their food too spicy. And the food they did serve was often a kind of Tex-Mex. When I say Tex-Mex, is um, you know, the meals that um, always come with rice and beans and maybe um, cheese, right, on top. The um, influence of, like, chips and salsa always at the table, which you don't always find at restaurants in Mexico. Elena says that over the past decade or so, more and more Mexican-owned restaurants and taquerias have popped up in Ohio. And they're offering dishes geared towards Mexican and other Latinx consumers. Things like menudo and tacos made with tongue and tripe. I don't think I've ever been to a uh, sort of traditional American uh, restaurant that ever has tongue in their (laughs) menu, right? So I think that a lot of the Mexican restaurants that are Mexican-owned in in Ohio have this sort of mix of dishes in their menus. So you do have some dishes that have more of a Tex-Mex flavor, and then you have other dishes that are clearly uh, more for the Mexican consumer. Elena says that having that mix of dishes is a way for restaurant owners to survive while also maintaining a taste of home. And she says, it's an invitation for non-Mexican customers to try something new. Back in the kitchen at Viva Jalisco, Juan adds a large can of jalapenos to the pot to give his soup bean some heat. Jalapenos. With the juice. You see the juice? Uh-huh. And we use la costeña sliced jalapenos. Okay. So let's keep it a little bit spicy. When Juan first started working in restaurants around Southern Ohio, he noticed that most of the customers were weary of spicy foods. So frijoles charros wasn't something he put on the menu when he first opened his restaurant. But now that he's been in the region for a couple decades, he's seen a shift. People are requesting more spice. We're here for almost 20 years. We, a lot of people start asking for hot sauce, jalapenos, put jalapenos in my fajitas, okay. And customers have actually started asking for frijoles charros by name. Sometimes it's Mexican or Mexican-American customers who are in Wellston for travel or work. Customers come from Texas, California, Florida. They probably travel in the United States or work in the construction. Hey, amigo, you have a frijoles charros. But sometimes it's non-Mexican customers who ask for this stew after having tried it at another restaurant. Juan's also noticed people requesting other traditional Mexican dishes that are becoming better known throughout the U.S. Things like tacos al pastor and elote, or Mexican street corn. Yeah, but a lot of people, a lot of American people love it now, traditional Mexican food. With changes in customer base and customer preferences, Juan has started serving frijoles charros once a week on the buffet line at Viva Jalisco. And he plans for the dish to become a permanent fixture on the menu. We uh, I got a new menu coming probably in the next few weeks, we want to add uh, frijoles charros and the appetizer. And he said that there's also lots of days when there is a pot of frijoles charros simmering on the stove. Customers just have to know to ask for it. For Elena Fallis, she encourages non-Mexican, non-Latinx customers to seek out these foods that might not be as familiar to them. Yeah, you can have your sort of traditional comfort food, you know, or what you associate with Mexican or Tex-Mex. But look for other dishes, right, that they might interest you. They might become your favorite. Um, So why not give it a try? In the kitchen, today's pot of charro beans has finished cooking. Amidst the sound of the on-duty cook cutting onions, Juan ladles me out a piping hot bowl. So you can try the 
the frijoles charros. Okay. As someone who's not too keen on spicy food, I was a little nervous. It's spicy, but it's not it's not too too spicy. Yeah. But that little bit of pickled flavor is really nice. The smoky flavor, the rich broth, and the acidity of the pickled jalapenos won me over. For Inside Appalachia, I'm Nicole Musgrave in Wellston, Ohio. Till next time, thanks for joining us as we journey throughout Appalachia. Our theme music is by Matt Jackford. Other music this week was provided by Joe Dobbs and the 1937 Flood, Mary Hot, the Sycamores, Anna and Elizabeth, the Carolina Chocolate Drops, John Blissard, and the Allegheny High School Marching Band. Bill Lynch is our producer. Xander Alloy is our associate producer. Our executive producer is Eric Douglas. Kelly Libby is our editor. Our audio mixer is Patrick Stevens. You can find us on Instagram and Twitter at InAppalachia. You can also send us an email to InsideAppalachia at WVPublic.org. Visit WVPublic.org slash InsideAppalachia to subscribe or stream all of our stories. Or look for Inside Appalachia on your favorite podcast app. Inside Appalachia is a production of West Virginia Public Broadcasting. Support for Inside Appalachia is provided by Concord University, offering 31 bachelor-level degrees and six master-level degrees for students of any age. More information at concord.edu.